0: We are going to have an impromptu session of of Ask Swami, but we are also joined by the um, virtual audience over the internet. Right. So it's not just us here but it's the whole world thanks to modern technology. Welcome to all those present here and all those who are joining in over the net. We'll start with questions from our internet audience.
1: Yes, the first question is from Josh in Woodstock, New York. I have two children ages four and six, and in trying to share with them my spiritual journey as best I can, I have found it is very difficult to tell a child that they are Brahman or even to tell them about God. It can be very confusing for them. I would hate for them to have to go nearly 40 years building their identification with the body-mind complex only to have to strive to remove that ignorance in their adulthood, as I have. What is the recommended approach to teach Advaita Vedanta to children, or to at least prime them for it when they are ready? Is there a way to give them a head start, as it were? Mm -hmm. And then he has another question. Is the concept of eka-jiva-vada or aloneness the same as the hard problem of consciousness?
0: second question will make you want to go sit in the boat. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Both beautiful questions. One very subtle and theoretical, but the first one is of great concern, Uh, a pressing question which many parents would have. One principle to remember with children, and you say, Swami, you are a fine one to talk about children. You don't have any children. But I dealt with children all my life, uh, from, from my monast- beginnings of my monastic life. When I first became a monk as a novice, the first thing they asked me to do was, I thought, you know, you need to join a monastery, what are they going to ask you to do? Meditate and maybe pray and read scriptures or something? The first thing they said, is, look, there is a hostel and there are 40 children, 10 year olds. Go take care of them. There are forty children. If I had gotten, uh, you know, in, uh, in samsara, in married life, I would have had one or two. But here, <laughs> there, are, there are forty here. So I dealt with kids uh, for many, many years. Okay. So here is one principle to uh, understand and hold on to firmly. Children do not listen; they imitate. <laughs> children do not listen; they imitate. Uh, child psychologists also will tell you: to a certain age they do not listen. Um, up till the teenage years imitation is the way they, way they learn. Of course uh, and during the teenage years also they do not listen. That's, also, that's a different <laughs> no, no. matter. So first thing is what are we doing? The parents and the grown-ups uh, in the family, in the school, and in society, what we do that the children will do. They pick it up. So a spiritual household is something that the atmosphere is imbibed by the children while growing up. Second thing is, so don't try to teach them, or don't give them talks on Advaita. Mm-hmm. You, they'll either, either not comprehend at all or you will uh, it might, you know, feel, lead to a rebellious feeling, a feeling of even repulsion. That some, something is forced down on us even if it's good for us. If you're not ready for it, you feel irritated and upset. So, Of course, you can talk to them about it, especially if they're curious, but otherwise a spiritual household, a household of study and prayer and spiritual music and love and peace and serenity, Uh, a household of where there is emotional comfort and support and structure is very good. Now, more directly to your question, telling them that they are Brahman and the identification, false identification with body-mind, if you build it up over the years, then again to deconstruct it is a big job. Correct. It is a big job. There is a nice story in ancient Indian mythology of Queen Madalasa, which uh, Swami Vivekananda loved. He repeated it here a number of times. So to cut a long story short, this queen, who was an enlightened uh, lady, her child the baby when the baby was in the crib she would uh, you know swing the crib and instead of a lullaby would she would sing niranjanavasi that you are the sinless you are the pure consciousness you are not this uh, body and mind teaching the child from the very beginning that i am not this thing i'm much bigger than this one little body that's a good idea mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of imbibe it yourself and radiate it out so the children can can pick it up um, that way. Mm. The identifications will not be built up so strongly if uh, the household, the Mm. house where they grow up is a spiritual house. Second question, eka jiva vada, is Mm. it related to the hard problem of consciousness? Consciousness.
1: Mm.
0: The hard problem of consciousness, let me just Say a few things about each of these terms. The hard problem of consciousness is something that is consciousness studies people are and is giving them headaches. Mm. <laughs> this is the central issue in consciousness studies today: that how can a physical system generate something? Sub- how can something objective generate the subjective experience of consciousness? Uh, how can a body and, body and brain, how can it generate a first-person experience? No other thing in the world does that. Uh, every other item, whatever physical description you give of it, that's the beginning and the end of it. Say for example, the microphone. The engineer can give a description of it, the chemist can give a deeper description of it, and the phys- uh, physics professor can give an even deeper description of of this microphone at the level of a a gadget, at the level of the chemicals composing it, at the level of the fundamental particles composing it. And that's the description of this microphone. There is no such thing as how does it feel to be a microphone. From within, does it feel like something to be a microphone? What does it experience itself as? The question is meaningless. You say, why? How do you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but the thing is, No engineer, no scientist, no philosopher ever ever will even make that claim that there is something what it feels like to be a microphone. There is no evidence for that. If you talk like that then you can talk anything. So, every physical system can be described in one way in terms of physics, chemistry, biology, engineering, whatever you call it. But this system, there is something very strange about you, the physical system Whatever the doctors and the biologists describe about you does not encompass the whole of you. There is something within you, like right now, all the time, what you consider yourself to be and what the doctor describes you as, there is a disconnect. What is the disconnect? Your experience of yourself, our experience of ourselves, is what? Sights, sounds, smell, touch, taste, thought, feeling, desire, pain, pleasure. <laughs> understanding memory forgetting all of these are directly experienced by us and what what does the uh, biologist or the doctor say the doctor speaks about muscles and tissue and organs and the biologist speaks about uh, or, the, or the neuroscientist speaks about the nervous system uh, the um, activity electrical activity in the brain where is the connection it seems that the physical body produces that one, what you call, what we experience as consciousness. That seems to be the mainstream view now. How it produces, nobody knows. Not only nobody knows, the startling thing is nobody has even an idea of where to begin. Nobody has an idea of where to begin. The only the scientific approach, the two broad approaches that are there, one is to deny consciousness altogether. Basically they are saying you don't exist body exists, the organs exist, the cells exist, but you as a person, you don't exist. You have to deny it. (laughs) You you say that that is ridiculous. Whether the body exists or not, it exists in my awareness. I am aware of the body. If you cannot explain awareness, then you have not even scratched the surface of what I am. The other approach is to reduce you, the awareness, to the body, to the brain. Somehow the brain produces consciousness. Like this candle produces light and heat, the flame. We call it an epiphenomenon. A byproduct of the neurochemical processes in the nervous system and the brain is the consciousness which you call yourself. How? Don't know. This is the only approach that science has so far. Even the most sophisticated attempts to explain uh, consciousness whether in terms of Information theory, Tonini, I think, yes. It's still trying to reduce it to brain states. And the information theory can be used to uh, analyze and understand the brain states. But what about the consciousness, the stuff of our awareness itself? Nobody knows. That is called the hard problem of consciousness. And the person who coined that term, David Chalmers, he is the head of the mind brain uh, consciousness unit in NYU. Now, your question here is Josh's question is, is Ekajiva Vada connected to this hard problem of consciousness? What is Ekajiva Vada? Here is the time when you'll want to go and sit in the boat. (laughs) Ekajiva Vada is this I am consciousness. That's what Advaita Vedanta says. And Advaita Vedanta says it is one consciousness. Now, there are different ways of dealing with this, the different approaches. The standard approach is that one consciousness associated with all these minds and bodies are the different individuals. And we have to finally realize our oneness with Brahman, that we are one with Brahman, one existence consciousness place. That's the standard approach. That's what we hear all the time. But there is another approach, which is uh, I would call a non-standard approach um, only some very radical non-dualists, Josh seems to be exploring that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> would say that. You know what they say? It's, it's uh, Those who are philosophy students, I can put it to you one word, it's radical philosophy, okay two words, radical solipsism. But w- what it means is this, S- you, this vada that literally means one jiva, mm-hmm. the doctrine of one jiva, one sentient being see we are one consciousness and everything appears in that one consciousness (coughs) you would say Swami hold on, Deika Jivavadin will say at that point he will interrupt you and say hold on everything appears in that one consciousness, everything appears in my consciousness all these other jivas, all these other beings they are appearing in my consciousness, right? how do I know that they are actually separate beings? they could all be like like the people I see in my dream Mm -hmm. You see in a dream you see so many people, but those people are not separate beings. They are all part of your imagination, imagination, products of your mind. They are products of your mind. Are they 101 different people you met in the dream? None of them are different. They are all you. In your dream, your mind appears as so many people and you interact with them also. But in the dream then, there is actually one sentient being. Who? The dreamer. In the dream, in your dream, there is only one sentient being, the dreamer. Are you with me so far? Mm -hmm. Now what the Advaitin does is, this Ekajivavadin, he transfers that to the waking stage also. He says the waking stage is in principle no different from a dream. In principle, there is only one person here. We are not talking about God or Brahman. Only one person. Who is that person? You. What about everybody else? What about you Swami? We are all part of your dream. But each one of us can say that. I am the only person. <laughs> and everybody else. See, that doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to be a way of taking you to that enlightenment. It's a methodology. But Ekajiva Vada holds there is only one Jiva. That Jiva alone, in that Jiva's imagination, appears Samsara and Ishwara. And when that Jiva becomes enlightened, it realizes itself as Turiya Brahman. That's it. What about others? No others. Is that connected to with the hard problem of consciousness? Only in so far as it, it deals with pure consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness applies across the board. Whenever you talk about consciousness, all of it. So what E.K. is very close to is uh, in Western philosophy it would be called solipsism, a very radical kind of solipsism, that only you exist. Okay. we can take one more question.
1: Yes. uh, This is a question from the teenager, um, from Arjo, who is 14.
0: All right, 14. Right. (laughs) Good. Very good.
1: The basis of my question lies in the argument that supposedly God grants happiness to all those who try to attain him or her and that God is the one who created us. You have said that one way of reaching God is to help the poor and the needy, but they too are a creation of God. Is God therefore biased enough to let them be a test for our so-called goodness and therefore allows them to lead a life of utmost suffering? At the end of the day, they also are trying to seek happiness and comfort and a life without struggle. And shouldn't God try to grant that? Isn't this contradictory?
0: Hmm. So Arjuna has put his finger on one of the oldest problems in religion. This is called the problem, of the, the problem of evil. If God exists, why is there suffering? Now very difficult to answer this in a couple of minutes. But first we must see the problem. How he has put it is a variation. He has come upon, upon it himself. But the general form of the problem is this. God is all-powerful, if God exists. God is all-powerful, omnipotent. God is all-knowing, omniscient. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then God knows the sufferings of everybody. And God is all-powerful, so God can do anything, can remove the sufferings of everybody. Add to this, God is loving. So a loving, powerful, knowing God, why does he not Remove the sufferings of people. Do you see the problem? If God was not powerful, see human parents, human parents are loving. You would not want your children to suffer. But you as human beings, we are limited. We have limited power. Human parents have limited power. You do your best for your children but that's not enough because we don't, uh, human beings do not have that kind of power. So we want that the children should not suffer, but we don't have the power. But suppose the human beings had the power to do everything good for the children. Wouldn't you do it? Of course you would do it. Now the heavenly parent, heavenly father or mother, why doesn't he, she, it, who is loving and powerful and knowing, why doesn't he remove suffering? That's the question. The problem of evil and many many answers are there. Many many answers. If, if I told you, told you some of them you would be underwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> they are, none of them are very convincing. There is one answer that it is character building. Suffering makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. But immediately you can uh, immediately object. How does the suffering of a baby make it stronger? A disease or a starving child dies in some underprivileged Part of the world, how did it become stronger? Or the suffering of an animal, how is the animal becoming stronger by suffering? I mean in general, sometimes it does. The classic example is that uh, the pupa, caterpillar which breaks out of the cocoon and becomes a butterfly. So some experiment I heard, I don't know how true it is, that if you help it, if you remove the, uh, the, the covering then it will not be able to fly. Because its wings require that exercise to come out. So then argument is given. Those who support this theory. Like that we need this struggle. Suffering so to become spiritually stronger. Maybe in some cases it is true. Maybe in other cases not, not true. it is not true. It is an important theological argument. In fact there is a whole branch of theology. Called theodicy. Justifying the ways of God to man. Explain. God will not explain. So on behalf of God we have to. We have to charge God and we have to also provide the defense counsel also. So God is absolutely unconcerned. (laughs) And many other theories are there. Why is there suffering? What is the theory in Hinduism? One common theory, the standard answer in Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism is the law of karma. It's not God's fault. Uh, Whose fault is it? It's yours. It's ours. So, how is it our fault? Law of karma is cause and effect. Consequences. Actions have consequences. So if I'm getting consequences now, pleasant or unpleasant, usually I don't ask too many questions when the consequences are pleasant. Win a lottery, I don't ask questions. Did I deserve to? Why did I win this lottery? Oh no. On the other hand, something unfortunate happens, unpleasant happens. Why do I deserve this? It has never made sense to me. People, there's so many wonderful people, loving people. I've lost faith in God. I, especially sometimes a beloved person, went through so much suffering. I prayed and prayed and prayed. Nothing happened. I lost faith in God. I, this kind of thing, I understand the emotional content behind it. But what does not, uh, what does not gel with me is, is that you knew there is tremendous suffering in the world, just because in your own case... This, you experienced it firsthand, now you have lost faith in God. In your place, I would have said I lost faith in God from the very beginning because there's so much suffering all around. Not because I or my beloved person suffered. That my suffering makes me lose faith in God, that argument uh, somehow, many people make it, but it doesn't um, cut much ice with me. Houston Smith, the great uh, professor of uh, religion, whose book, The World's Religions, It's still a textbook, standard textbook. He died a couple of years ago. He had a very tragic incident in his life. His beloved granddaughter was murdered. And then afterwards, there was a radio interview sometime afterwards, and the interviewer asked, so Professor Smith, do you still believe in God after this? The person who told me this narrative um, She's a nun in Santa Barbara and she, was, she knew Houston Smith quite well and she could mimic him very beautifully. So she told me that, that when they asked the question, he replied in his characteristic way. He, he replied, how absurd. The people that die and are murdered all over the world, all throughout history. Just because today it is my granddaughter, I should stop believing in God. How absurd. Whether you believe in God or not, that's a different thing. This cannot be a ground for believing or disbelieving. So law of karma is one. Suppose that doesn't cut eyes with you. Though that is, I, I remember there's this book, Professor Arthur Herman, I referred this earlier also. He was a professor of philosophy in Hawaii University. He wrote a book, The Problem of Evil in Indian Philosophy. But there he has collected the answers, which I mean, answers to this question. He has collected the answers. 23 answers. I gave only two answers now. 23 answers he has collected to why there is suffering in the world if God exists. 23 answers. None of them are very convincing. So don't be in in a hurry to find out what are the answers. But there are different answers. He has collected it from the different religions of the world, philosophies of the world, literature of the world. Has collected those answers. One more answer. Let me see if if you like it. Buddha's answer. Not only law of karma. A deeper thing is, as he said, all compounded things decay. Everything is transitory in this world. So, if everything is transitory in this world, whatever situation you have, which you like, is bound to, by definition, melt up after some time. We like certain things and we don't like the rest of it. This situation is good. This person is good. This relationship is good. This food is good. But only for a time being, because it will change. The person will change, your taste will change, Um, body ages, the world changes. And so the acceptable, pleasant kind of situation which you liked, that will change, bound to change. Therefore, suffering is inevitable. Do you see how the transitoriness of the world will lead to suffering? Inevitably. That's an insight that the Buddha got. All compounded things decay in the world. they are all things come together and they fall. Whatever has come together will fall apart. Bodies fall apart. Minds fall apart. Relationships fall apart. It was a cheerful guy. <laughs> no, actually it is true. Uh, Professor Heinrich Zimmer, he said, a spirit of unbounded optimism underlies all Indian philosophy. Why? You know, what is negativity, what is pessimism? Hopelessness without any solution. That is pessimism. Whereas in Indian philosophy, except the Charvaka, the materialist, all other philosophers, all the schools of Buddhism, all the schools of Jainism, and certainly all the schools of Hinduism, Sikhism, all of them, they all say that a solution is possible. So, though their prognosis about the world is pretty negative, but their ultimate point is that you should be positive. There is a solution possible. They call it. Moksha. Kaivalya. Uh, nirvana. Whatever they call it. In fact. That, that's why religion. You might consider religion to be gloomy. Religion is fundamentally positive. Because it says a solution to the sufferings of the world. Is possible. So this is a general answer to Arjo's question. Now taking his particular. Particular. Um, by the way. The audience here also can ask questions. When I finish with this. Raise your hands and I'll invite you to come here and ask. Um, The answer to that particular question is, did God create people to suffer so that we can help them? No. Suffering is, as you saw, God has not made people suffer so that you can become a saint. Rather, through the process of your own suffering and helping others, one transforms oneself. One can only do the best one can. Once in a sea of suffering, do the best you can. Not that you can, you can solve the problems of the world. One cannot. Even the great avatars have not solved the problems of the world. The world still is a pretty miserable place. But what we can do is, as Arjuna has uh, understood correctly, is that by pursuing, by, by working for the welfare of others, one can transform oneself. And to some extent, definitely you can help others. Definitely you can help others. All right, we can go on with this, but I'll come to you. Uh, Krishan, come here first. You can have to come here and tell us your name and ask the question.
3: Uh, Hi, my name is Krishan, and I'm asking for my friend from Bangladesh. He texted me. His name is Safat. Uh, When I'm watching my thoughts without generating further thoughts, is it my mind or the witness consciousness that is doing the watching? In the waking state, I notice the absence of thoughts when the thoughts subside. If it is the witness consciousness that notices the absence, why can't I notice the absence of thoughts in the deep sleep state in the same way? I feel like that I am stuck in my mind even when I am witnessing it. Or otherwise, I could have done it in the deep sleep too. All right.
0: A subtle question, but important. These questions are important not only for the person who is asking, but for all of us basic question it comes up keeps coming up again and again when you talk about witness consciousness isn't it the mind watching the mind because the mind can do that there's a term for that introspection you can watch your mind so when you speak about witness consciousness are you talking about that kind of thing watching the mind no this is the difference the mind can watch itself you can introspect and look at the thoughts that are coming up in your mind That is a practice of witnessing the movements of the mind. But it's still a practice. Why is it a practice? Because you can do it or not do it. It can begin and it can can end. What begins and ends, what you can do or what you choose not to do, that is not the witness consciousness. Whenever you are not even introspecting, a flash of pain comes. You're not practicing. Vedantic introspection, I am the seer and the pain is the scene, you're not practicing it. Pain comes and you say, ouch, did you feel it or not? That which felt the pain, that which reacted with, uh, with ouch, that one is the witness consciousness. Even when you are not trying to introspect, if you try to introspect and try to be a witness of your thoughts, that's a good practice, but remember the operative word is practice. If you think that is the witness, then this, con- this problem will arise, that that is not there in deep sleep. I am watching my thoughts, sometimes I watch it, sometimes I don't watch it. Certainly in deep sleep I do not watch it because I don't feel I am doing anything in deep sleep. Then what is the real, so this is the first point. This thing which you are talking about is the mind, certainly the mind. It is certainly the mind, it's not the real witness consciousness. One Swami in the Himalayas put it this way, it's a, an easy mistake to make. One Swami in the Himalayas, put it this way. He said, teaching witness and witnessed. Drigdrisha Viveka, seer and seen. After teaching this, he said to the monks gathered there. So Swamis, do you feel that you are the consciousness in which thoughts are arising and thoughts are moving and thoughts are subsiding? You are calm now, relaxed. And he said, Yes, yes, yes. Then this only works in Hindi. I'll translate. He said, <laughs> you have dug a specially big pit for yourself. You are going to fall into that pit. That's the mind. That's the mind. That which learns Drigdrishya viveka, seer and seen discrimination, is the mind. That which attempts to practice it is the mind. That which makes the breakthrough is the mind. But once the breakthrough is made, it points to something beyond the mind, which you wear earlier, are now, even in deep sleep. You don't have to try anything there. We don't know it yet, that not-knowingness is in the mind. And the knowingness about it also will come in the mind and remove that ignorance. And you remain as the witness of the mind, which you always wear, from time immemorial. In deep sleep, also you are that, but you will not have that kind of a thought. I am witnessing my deep sleep earlier. I could not. Now I can witness my deep sleep. No, 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 you cannot. If you do that, then you are not in deep sleep. <laughs> that's that's the mind. The f- funny story of the you know the, uh, mothers sometimes check check if children are sleeping. Is the good boy sleeping? Is is he asleep? If he's asleep, then his right toe will move. And the right toe moves, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just f- f- faking it. <laughs> I remember in, uh, in Deoghar, in, in the school where I first joined Ramakrishna Order School, there were was, was hostels where children stay, little kids. And they spe- become specially energetic and naughty when, at, at bedtime. And the Swami in charge of the hostel was once, one Swami in charge of one hostel was very strict. And the other Swami was a very elderly, very kindly, uh, grandfatherly old Swami, and he couldn't manage those kids. He, he was 80 and they were eight. I mean, how what do you expect? <laughs> so he went for advice to the strict Swami. "How do you manage to m- persuade them to go to sleep?" He said, "I don't take any nonsense. I say, I'm going to count to three, one, two, and three. By that time three, you should be all tucked in bed with your eyes completely shut. And no movement lights off. And I count one. Two, by the time they're all jumping in bed and getting into the, the, into the bed sheets and, and into, into the cupboards and going to sleep. And three, it's done. Nobody dares to move after that. So this elderly Swami said, I should try it. And then he went and tried. It and then he came back and said, it didn't work. Why? I said, one, two, and the kids said, three. <laughs> <laughs> they know what how much they can push you <laughs> yeah so one indication then well, how do you make the breakthrough here is the indication you said the questionnaire i feel that i am trapped in the mind what notices this that I'm, i feel the feeling of being trapped in the mind is that one trapped in the mind be very quiet and stay with that question that i am trapped in the mind whatever i do is the mind what is saying that what notices it that one is not trapped does anybody understand what i'm talking about here some of you do yes that one is not trapped in the mind never was all right thank you
3: he has a second question a oh, second uh, question sorry uh, in the Manduko Upanishad, it is advised to focus on the sense of I am, Ekatma Pratyasaram. Hmm. When I try to focus on the I am, I find I am focusing on the Ahamkara or ego, which is located somewhere in my chest. Hmm. Am I doing it right?
0: All right. What you have to do is, I am, yes, I feel I am. What notices that I am? You have to go like that. Atma Pratyasaram saram means anusaram following that or proved by that so that feeling of i i i is pointing to something that pointing back you must follow back there one cannot use words one must intuitively grasp that so we say i feel a one uh, an i ness in the middle of the chest here i am here i am what notices that i am you will see very quickly you go beyond language and thought you're still there, but you can't express it anymore. This I am here, this you can express. You can locate it. You can say it. But that which is noticing this, that you cannot locate, you cannot speak about it, but it's indubitably there. But it's not a thing. It's not an object. All right. we'll take a question. I'll, I'll take your question next. You come in now ask a couple of questions from the internet audience. Uh,
1: These are several questions about the struggle of trying to follow a spiritual life whilst living in the world. Um, First one is from Vivek. How should I use this knowledge of the I being the eternal witness separated from body and mind to successfully perform the duty I have to do as a worldly person and achieve the goals I have set forward? This knowledge brings my mind to peace, but still I am unable to use this knowledge for the purpose of fulfilling my duty as a person in the world. Then from Alok, at this stage of my life, the preoccupation with earning money for a stable life makes me do work which I do not necessarily like, but also cannot leave. This makes my mind restless, coupled with the feeling that I am neglecting my spiritual life, How do I find peace in such a situation? And from Ravi, seeing how temporary life is, and the futility in striving for possessions and position, I find myself lacking the passion to do anything. Serve others doesn't seem convincing, as suffering problems are fundamental to the nature of life. Birth brings with it the problems of sustenance. Even if one dedicates oneself to serving humanity, His or her work can at best be described as an attempt to plug a hole in a ship with a million holes that will inevitably sink. How should one live? And how and where can one find meaning and purpose? And lastly, from Abhilash, throughout your lectures, the truth most evident is that God, realization, and attainment of oneness is the prime goal of life. Is there not any way to marry this aim with the attainment of worldly perfection? If not, then toiling day and night for a Nobel Prize or Turing Award seems to be as petty as being an ignorant glutton. So if we can be successful, in quotes, and attain fulfillment in this life, then how should we go about it?
0: All right. I'm glad you've clubbed those questions together. Do you see what beautiful questions they are? They are written with a lot of feeling and seriousness, because you can see it comes from the person's present struggle in life. First, a little philosophical background, and then we'll go to the application. Look at the language used. I see that I am the witness of body and mind, and this gives me peace, different from body and mind, and obviously different from everybody else. I'm different from everybody else. Now you have taught me I'm different from the body. I'm different from the mind. I'm the witness. unchanging witness of a changing mind, changing body. It gives me peace. But I don't feel the urge to do anything more then. Um, how do I live my life then? Because this witness consciousness is unaffected by this life. Whatever happens, happens. And the similar kind of questions have come. The other, other questions are also. In the struggle of life, First of all, is it worthwhile? And how do I do it? With what attitude? Is it at all relevant to spirituality if I am the eternally separate, unchanging witness of all of this? This happens when you leave Advaita incomplete. I have said again and again, in Advaita Vedanta, two steps are important. One is stepping back from the body and mind in your understanding and see that you are the witness of body, mind and everything else. But that's only one step. This is called Atma-Anatma-Vichara. The distinction between the true self and the not-self. Why is this necessary? Because right now we have mixed up the true self with what is not the self. Who am I or what am I? I'm consciousness, pure consciousness, Atma, Satchidananda, but actually, practically, I think and behave in a way as if, yes, I'm consciousness, no doubt, but I am also mind. All these thoughts, I am. Angry. I am angry. Desirous. I am desirous. Depressed. I am depressed. Apathetic. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do anything. I don't say there is a wave of apathy arising in the light, in my consciousness, so it arises and disappears. I am unattached. No, I don't say that. I am apathetic. Body. Body. I am old or young or diseased or overweight or skinny, all of this body. So I am attached with the body and mind. I have included it in my definition of the self in what I am. So that has to be excluded. That is the first step. Otherwise, I will not come to a correct understanding of what I am. That is called Atma anatma vichara. The Shankaracharya in his famous hymn, in Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham Shivoham. But what does he say first? I am not the mind, I am not the intellect, I am not the memory, I am not the senses, I am not this body made of five elements. I am the witness consciousness. So first, not this, not this, you you must first get clarity. Really feel, I am this immortal consciousness. But, that's only the first step. There is one more important step to be taken. If you stop there, it is a bit like Sankhya philosophy. But there's one more important step to be taken. This is not Advaita. It is not non duality. How can it be non duality? Because now I am pure consciousness, and here everything else, there are millions of things different from me. How is it not two? Yeah, it is millions of things. One consciousness and so many other things. Atma, anatma. The next step is to see the, to reduce the anatma to the atma. That all these things I saw separately from myself are also myself. Yes, mind is also consciousness. Body is also nothing other than consciousness. In fact, the entire universe is nothing other than you, the consciousness. You alone are in the form of everything. You are one with everything. They are not separate, valueless things which you can dispense and walk away unconcerned. It's all one. It's one with you. Everybody is you yourself. So that is the second step. Swami Vivekananda put it very powerfully. Two things he said. The divinity within us and the oneness of the universe. Central teaching of Vedanta. The divinity within us and the oneness of the universe. These two. Otherwise this problem will come. Alienation from the world. I am a witness consciousness. What about the others? doesn't matter earlier alienated from every other person but I hugged my body-mind to myself. Now I'm alienated from body-mind also. Extra problem. Vedantic problem. This uh, example of the clay pot. What the example of the clay pot is, take a pot, it's a pot, but then you're told that actually there is something called clay apart from the pot which is the cause of this pot. Uh, it is the material out of which the pot is made. The pot is not an entity. The clay is an entity. So, clay is the cause, pot is the effect. But you, so, you have separated clay and pot in your mind. If you stop there, all these problems will come. <clears throat> you have to go one step further. What is one step further? That there is no clay and pot. It's not two things. It is one thing only. And what is that one thing? You started by thinking it's a pot. You should end up by thinking it's clay and clay alone. That is the purpose of the procedure. You start by thinking it's world, body, mind. And you end up by thinking, I Brahman alone am all of this. Aham Brahmasmi Brahme Vedam Sarvam Atme Vedam Sarvam. I am Brahman. Brahman alone is all of this. The self, the real self, I alone am all of this. If you stop in between, I am separate, world is separate, then you have got two real things. World, Body, mind, world, one thing, and I, the consciousness, one thing. That's not the correct. Uh, that's not the end of Advaita. That's not the conclu- That is not non-dualism. You stop with clay and pot. Obviously, it's false. There are not two things. Can you show me separately? Clay separately, pot separately? No. Then the clay pot theory becomes a problematic. Alan, what he called it, the crack pot theory. <laughs> uh, the clay pot theory. If you don't complete it, from pot vision. Ghatadrishti to mrittika drishti. In Sanskrit, very beautifully. Pot vision to clay vision. Without doing anything to the pot. You leave it unharmed. But you change your paradigm. From world, samsara drishti to brahma drishti. Sarvam brahmamayam jagat. Once this drishti comes, then these problems will not arise. You have oneness with everything. Whatever you have to do in that station of life, you will do with gusto and enthusiasm and yet with perfect detachment. One Swami put it in one phrase to me. Many, many years ago, more than 20 years ago. I asked a question about karma yoga. How can one do work without desire? One needs a motivation to work. How can you do work without desire? And he said, disinterested work, my boy, not uninterested work. Now in English the word disinterested uninterested are different uninterested means you say in hindi chalta hai let it somehow finish up the work there is no need to do it i am not getting anything out of it so just somehow finish it i'm not interested You're telling me to do it okay i'll do it but disinterested means the meaning of disinterested is that i don't have an axe to grind i don't have a personal motive behind it a disinterested party i can work with full enthusiasm you are doing puja out of devotion to God. How carefully you do puja. Your, your thoughts, your speech, your actions, all the articles. Everything is done so carefully and beautifully. And seriously. And yet you don't want anything back there. Can you do all the work in the world like that? It will be wonderful. So you that is spiritualizing life. That happens when you have. Not to pot drishti, clay drishti. But from samsara drishti to brahma drishti. Everything is my beloved God. So the suffering person is also my beloved Lord. The duty is also the, the puja of. Which I am going to give, give, give to my Lord. So what was. Why you feel apathy. Because the worldly goal does not pull you anymore. And that's good. That's why you feel apathy. The worldly goal does not pull you. You have seen through it now. You don't, it doesn't excite you anymore. Now, that worldly goal has to be replaced by a spiritual goal. Until I am liberated, until I get moksha, nirvana, I must spiritualize all my activities. If I become apathetic, that is tamasic, not sattvic. All right, we'll stop here. We'll take this lady's question and we'll stop. Are we ready with the... Yes, it's ready. Please come.
2: Swamiji, um, my name is Geeta. Gita. I have a question on guilt Um, as a parent. um, If, uh, for example, um, an adult is suffering uh, due to adharmic reasons, as a parent, when they are suffering, you know, you have a lot of compassion and love and jump in to uh, help help do the suffering. The same um, person then causes a lot of pain and hurt, and we get advisement, then just stay away, don't um, um, respond. Um, At the same time, we hear, see God in all. But there's, in doing so, there's tremendous amount of guilt, as much as the compassion to end the suffering. So how do you, how to, what kind of tool can we use to feel less guilty, or what advice would you have for somebody
0: That is understandable. Because, if you try to take care of others, especially you're trying to take care of sick people, it's not easy. It sounds noble. A lot of people who go into social service, whether it is in the family or whether you do social service for people outside, actually when you try to do it, it's not at all easy. There's so much of reaction from other people and uh, reaction in your own mind. When you see people, people are not grateful, people play politics with your work, people um, criticize you, that's in the field of social service. But in a family also, when you are looking after say a sick person, very difficult to deal with that. That's why um, in psychiatric care also they talk about the well-being of the caregiver, the one who is taking care of the patient. Physical illness, mental illness, whatever. The one who is taking care of the patient also must take care of his or her own health and mental well-being. Otherwise, if you break down, if you are upset, how can you provide care to that person? So your own spiritual strength and peace of mind is necessary. Now one thing I will say is, each case is different. I don't know about your own particular case. You have to make up your own mind that way. To do as much as you can without suffering a breakdown yourself. Uh, and for that spiritual practice is very good. Meditation, prayer, detachment. Like a doctor treats the patient with a lot of detachment. Doctors do not treat their own children or their own family members. So detachment is also necessary.
2: But that causes a lot of guilt.
0: As, um, detachment means not mind. helping. Helping mm-hmm. but <laughs> mentally don't get involved. Yeah. So, if somebody shouts, um, insults you uh, and all of that, a doctor would not be affected by it because the doctor has nothing to do with that person. The doctor is just providing um, uh, care. You get upset by it because you are emotionally involved with that person. If that person hits back, you get upset because you are emotionally involved with that person. So, their detachment is necessary. Here is a suffering person. I am dealing with the suffering and sickness in this body. Beyond this body, beyond even the mind, beyond even the person. Is that one consciousness. Is that one God. Which I worship. Now one thing I will say here and stop. Swami Ashokananda has pointed out. Again and again a question. A complaint comes in spiritual life. Swami I try to meditate. My mind goes here and there. Difficult to meditate. And obviously it's difficult to meditate. You know why it's difficult to meditate? What what do you do when you try to meditate? You sit down close your eyes, you shut out the world, you're not moving, you're not dealing with other people, all your mental capacity is freed so that you can meditate. The moment it is freed, it runs right because we cannot control it. Whatever comes up from within, the mind chases it. If external things you cut off, it will bring out its own samsara from within. That's why it's so difficult to meditate when you're sitting by yourself. There is no challenge anymore. The world does not engage your conscious capacity. Whereas Ashokanji pointed out, if you take the path of service, when you are dealing with a sick person, you're taking care of a sick person, nobody ever will say, My mind is wandering here and there. That person will make sure your mind is there (laughs) by shouting you at you, cursing you. If you're teaching a group of 10 year old kids in class, you can't say, My mind is wandering here and there, I'm falling asleep. They will make sure that you cannot, you will not fall asleep or your mind wanders here and there. You are in charge of so many people. It's a wonderful way to concentrate. If you can overcome the challenge, it's difficult, but if you can overcome the challenge and see it as spiritual practice, not as a person who should be grateful or not as a service which should be easy. Serving a sick person is never easy, especially an older person who is sick. So you have to convert it to a spiritual practice in your mind with detachment. With prayer and a meditative approach to it. Take a witness approach to it. It's not my um, husband, wife, father, mother, uncle, child who is like this and who is uh, giving me so much suffering. No. It is God in this form. It is a perfect place for me to help and help. That person also will be helped and I will be uplifted by that help, not uh, degraded by it. All right, let's bring this to a close. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Rama Krishna Rupa Namastu